Morning, everybody. Welcome to Good News Gathering. My name is Jeff, and I'll be uh, teaching this morning's lesson. And if this is your first time at G&G, um, or if you've been attending here for probably less than a year, uh, you may be wondering, what is Decision Day? What, what exactly is that, and what's, what's that all about? And you may be thinking, <laughs> depending on your church background, you may be thinking, okay, this church has some big decision that they need to make, and they're going to probably cut the service a little short, have a business meeting, and then take a vote, okay? Um, or you may be thinking, okay, here we go. <clears throat> they're going to roll out some high-pressure sales pitch to try and get me to give money, or um, they're going to they're gonna want me to come down front at the end of the service and make some kind of public declaration of faith. And if that's what you're thinking that this morning is all about, I've just got one word for you. Relax, okay? Just take a deep breath. Everything's going to be fine, okay? Number one, <laughs> we don't do business meetings on Sunday morning. And in our 21-year history as a church, we've never taken a vote, okay? That's not how we operate, so everything's cool, okay? We also don't use high-pressure tactics to get people to give or to get people to make critical decisions about something as important as their faith. That's why we've never passed an offering plate down the rows. We simply have containers by the doors in the back, and our people give as they feel led by God. And we operate within the means provided by this church family. Um, that's also why none of us on the leadership team or the staff are allowed to know who gives or who doesn't give. That information is held in confidence by our financial team. And so <laughs> that way nobody ever has to wonder or worry if on Sunday morning they're being the, the teacher is teaching at them, okay? Because the people that occupy this seat have no idea who gives, okay? So you could be the largest donor Good News has ever had, or you could give nothing at all, and I would never know that, nor would anybody else that occupies this seat. Now, <clears throat> that's also why we don't do long songs at the end of the service and beg people to come forward in front of everybody. Okay, We do private baptism interviews where you can sit down with me or another staff member and discuss what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and get any questions that you might have answered before publicly confessing your faith and being baptized in the presence of this church family. Okay, Does that make sense to everybody? Now, with that said, Decision Day has become an important part of the life of this church family. And it's a time that we set aside each year to provide just a little space for each one of us to do some personal business with God. But any decisions that you decide to make today are between you and him, unless you choose to let somebody else know, perhaps your spouse or a close Christian friend or, or maybe your life group. And there, in your information packet that you received on the way in, there's, there's a decision day card that we'll get to after a bit, okay? And so I'll kind of walk you through that, so don't, don't, if, you, if you see it, don't start filling that out, because I'll, I'll take you through it. But we support this day and the decisions that will be made with 24 hours of prayer and Bible reading. And so beginning at 9 a.m. yesterday morning, 
people began arriving here at the ministry center or in their own homes for one-hour intervals, praying over each ministry area and reading through the entire New Testament. In fact, the last person had the 9 to 10 a.m. slot this morning because we had that hour thing going on with daylight savings. But in the last 24 hours, I want you to know that you have been prayed for, okay? And this church family as a family has been prayed for. And each ministry that operates here has been prayed for. And people who don't even know Christ and people who don't even go here to church have been prayed for. So if this is your first time at Good News Gathering, in my opinion, you couldn't have picked a better day to come, okay? Because today you're going to get a window into the very heart of this church. You're going to get a really clear picture of what drives us and what motivates us. And here's what I think you'll discover as we go through this day. We believe, to the very core of our being, that the Bible is God's word. We believe that. In fact, God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, said this. He said, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, notice the word, it starts with the word all. It says all scripture, not, not some, not just the verses that I like, not just the verses that I'm comfortable with, or the verses that I feel like I completely understand. No, it says all scripture. And it says all scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it is the very expression of God in written form. It's written by human authors under the direction and inspiration of God, but it's his word. Now, I can imagine probably what maybe some some of you that are new to us might be thinking. You're thinking, great, (laughs) great. They got all this cool stuff. They got coffee and donuts. They got this great kids program. They got cool lights and sound and a jamming band. But at the end of the day, they're Bible thumpers. Okay? (laughs) And you might be thinking, man, if I can just kind of like slide out of here and notice while the lights are down, grab a cup of coffee and hit the road. I'm out of here. And if that describes what you're thinking this morning, I get that. Okay? Because maybe you've had a bad experience at church or something like that, or maybe you had a Christian who used the Bible as leverage on you, or somebody tried to beat you over the head with Scripture, or maybe you're brand new to the Bible, but stuff that you've heard about this or read about this on the Internet, and you're thinking, man, does it really say that? I mean, some of that stuff sounds pretty, pretty hard, man. And here's what I want you to get this morning right up front. Because what we're going to do this morning, and this, this, I'm, I'm really excited about this, but we're going to look at a very difficult passage of Scripture. Some of you will look at this passage of Scripture and say, that's hard. Others of you will look at that passage of Scripture and say, that, no, that's not hard, that's harsh. And some of you might be even thinking, okay, Jeff, why, why are you dealing with this? Why can't you stick to Jesus loves the little children? Jesus heals the sick. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Those are nice stories. And they are. And we've covered them. But here's why we also cover hard passages. It's because we believe this is God's word. 
And even when it's hard, it's there for us to learn from. Even when it's tough, it's there to teach us. Even when it's blunt, and today's passage is blunt, beware ignoring it. And here's, here's the thing. If, if we allow ourselves to learn from it, to be disciplined by it, we will become more like the one we say we follow. If you're a Christian, that's Jesus Christ. And I believe, friends, if you'll hang in with, there with me for just a few moments, one of the things you're going to discover this morning is this. Even when it's hard, it's still the truth. Okay? And let's, let's be honest, sometimes truth is hard. I mean, it is what it is. And the second thing I think you'll see when you look into the heart of G&G is this. We believe that God expects his followers to be generous. We, we believe that, that that is true of us as individual Christians, but it's also true of us as a church family. And that's why nine years ago, we made a decision as a church family to become what we call a tithing church. In other words, 10% of the money that comes in here into our ministry development fund, which funds all of our ministries and funds everything, funds our, you know, funds our salaries for staff and all that kind of stuff, 10% of that goes out into the community to help people in need, not only in Hillsboro, but beyond in, in Haiti and places like that. And, and some of you may be thinking, well, how, how can you afford to give money away when you don't even take up an offering? And here's the way we look at it, friends. We can't afford not to give. Because, you see, we don't give in hopes that God will bless us. We give because he already has. He's been blessing us for the last 21 years. Now, today, in the fourth and final week of this lesson series, this lesson series entitled Supporting My Family, our focus verse for this series, these are, these are words that are spoken by the Apostle Paul, and these, these words illustrate God's expectation that his followers will be generous. So it's up here on the screens, let's all recite it together. And it's a little long, but, but we've been doing this for three weeks, so you're all used to it. Okay, here we go. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, you showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul worked with his hands, as we learned in the first week, as a tent maker. And his work, and, and also our work even today, is designed to enable us to provide support in three different spheres of life. Three spheres in which all Christians should be operating. And the first sphere is this. The first sphere of support is that I should support myself and my own family. And those, notice Paul said, these hands of mine have supplied my own needs. My needs and the needs of those who are dependent upon me. If I'm mentally and physically capable of supporting myself and my family, I should do so. 
I should not expect others to do it for me. The second sphere of support is my church family. You notice that Paul refers to my hands have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And what he's referring to there, and when he's referring to his companions, is those brothers and sisters in the faith that would travel with him when he went on missionary journeys. This was his church family. And so by working, he supplied not only his own needs, but he, he helped those who helped support him spiritually. But there's a third sphere, the sphere of those who cannot help themselves. In other words, these are people not who don't want to work or for whatever reason choose not to work. No. These are people who are mentally or physically unable to work. And as Christian people, we have a responsibility to help provide for people who cannot provide for themselves. Now, today's lesson is entitled, Decision Day, A Word of Warning. And it's based on five verses. That's all we're going to cover today, is just five. And some of those of you that have been around a while, you know, man, that's, that's a limited number of verses for what's usual here at Good News Gathering. But just five verses, and they're written by the half-brother of Jesus, a guy by the name of James. And he's addressing a problem that every one of us in this room has probably experienced, okay? I would imagine every one of you has had this experience at some point in time. Here's what I mean, okay? A little bit over a year ago, my wife and I decided to move. And so we sold our house in Berrysville, and we moved into Hillsboro, okay? And if you've ever moved, you know what I'm talking about, okay? You start cleaning, right? And you start cleaning out closets and you start cleaning out drawers that you have and you start finding stuff that you didn't know you had. You start finding stuff and you think to yourself, what is that? Where did that come from? How long have I had that? Why do I have that? How much did that cost me? Can I get anything for it? Okay? I found stuff I hadn't used in years. I found stuff I didn't know I owned. And unfortunately, quite a bit of it I could no longer use. It was out of date, it expired, or it was just it was just, you know, it it like deteriorated over time and it's like, why did I even keep that? And it's, it's Kind of like this, all right? Going through a drawer, we found our son Reed's old cell phone. Now, Reed moved out of our house and moved to New York City nine years ago, all right? But I'm sure when he moved, we probably thought, well, we better keep it just in case, right? He might need it someday, And there it is. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I mean, y'all know, those of you who know me well know this couldn't be my phone, but I'm thinking to myself, we could have sold it and got some money out of it. I mean, you know, you you can take all your personal information off these things. We could have maybe just given it to somebody who needed a phone, but no, we put it in a drawer and we never used it and we forgot about it and now... 
This is all it's good for. And you know something else I discovered when we moved? There was a whole lot of stuff that that was all it's good for. That's the problem. Why do I have that? It's the problem of stuff and our tendency, and I've got that tendency, and you do too, just, just, to just kind of accumulate over time far more than we ever need and far more than we will ever use. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, weighs in on this tendency of ours. And friends, he doesn't pull any punches. So here's the deal, Okay. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're just checking us out or you've been a Christian for years and maybe as long as you can remember, you're going to need to put your big boy or your big girl pants on this morning because James is not messing around, okay? And some of you may be wondering, well, why should I listen to James? Anyway, it's not Jesus. I mean, besides the fact that he wrote a book of the Bible, let me give you just a little bit of background for James to give you some appreciation for him. James is first mentioned in Scripture. Very early in Jesus' ministry, when Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth, and, and Jesus, his preaching is starting to attract a following, but when he goes home, the people in his own hometown are skeptical of him. They don't know what to think of him. I mean, this is a hometown. We all know him. I mean, and now he's out there preaching and acting like he's somebody, and they say this. <laughs> this is a town spokesman talking. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? So, so Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, right? But then she and Joseph went on to have other children after Jesus and James appears to be the oldest half-brother of Jesus. However, the Bible tells us this, and this is interesting, it's, and this happens late in Jesus' ministry, okay? Not long before he died, it says this, even his own brothers did not believe in him. So here you got James, he's a half-brother of Jesus, and he's not buying it. Son of God? I don't think so. I grew up with you, Okay? It wasn't until Jesus rose from the dead that James believed. Why? Why the change? Because he saw Jesus alive. The Bible says this, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Then he was seen by James. James. And James went on to become a pillar and possibly even, many scholars believe, the pastor, lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem, a church that some scholars believe grew to 30,000. His reputation as a righteous man became so widespread that even among Jews, not Christians, even among Jews, he became known as James the Just And that word just means righteous, in right standing with God. They recognized something about this man that was right and good and just. Now, approximately 30 years after Jesus returned to heaven, James was arrested, and he was commanded to deny 
that his half-brother was the Messiah. And they made it very clear, do this or die. He refused. He refused to deny that his brother rose from the dead. He refused to deny that his brother was the son of God and he was stoned to death for his faith. And that's according to the Jewish, not Christian, Jewish historian Josephus. Less than 10 years after James <laughs> was executed in Jerusalem, the city was sacked and the temple was destroyed by the Romans. Hundreds of thousands of Jews died. In fact, one Roman historian said that they executed by crucifixion 500 Jews a day for days on end. And Josephus, a Jewish again, not Christian historian, wrote this. He said, these miseries befell the Jews by way of revenge for James the just, who was the brother of Jesus, called the Christ, on account that they had slain him who was a most righteous person. So Josephus attributes the destruction of Jerusalem to God's justice for the murder of James. Whoa. Talk about an impact. Now, what we're about to read is from a letter James wrote to Jewish Christians probably living in the area of Jerusalem in Galilee where Jesus conducted most of his ministry. And he's lowering the boom. So fasten your seatbelts. And remember, this is not Jeff talking. This is James, okay? And he gives four very blunt warnings. Now, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in, Okay? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us and for this time that you've given us to dive into your word. And Father, what a precious thing it is to have a word from you, a word in written form that we can all read together and learn from. Thank you for blessing us with it, but help us, Father, to allow it to teach us to discipline us, to grow us, to conform us into the likeness of your son. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now friends, if this is your first time at Good News, you received on your way in a packet of information. It has a white sheet with holes punched on the side and that's an outline with all the scriptures and fill in the blanks that will help you follow along with this morning's lessons. So we're gonna go through four warnings from James. Here we go. And he begins like this in the fifth chapter of this book that we know as the book of James in the New Testament. It says this, now listen, you rich people. Wow, <laughs> what a start, right? Now listen, you rich people, and I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, I can stop listening right now. This doesn't have anything to do with me because I'm not rich. James is talking to somebody else, okay? And some of us who are doing a daily Bible reading plan, when we get to sections like this and we start reading what Jesus has to say about rich people or James or any of the other authors that talk about rich people, we just kind of skim on through because you know what? They're not talking to us. So we're not rich. 
the truth is, friends, chances are we're richer than we think we are. And James is giving us his first warning right out of the gate, and it goes like this. He's saying this to Christian people. He's saying, don't assume I'm not rich. Don't assume that because it may not be true. Here's the truth for almost every one of us in this room. I don't think I'm rich. That's true for most people. Most of us Americans, if you ask Americans, are you rich? They say no, but I know somebody who is. Somebody has more than me, somebody who, who has a bigger bank account or a bigger house or a bigger car. I know rich people. I'm just not one of them. I don't think I'm rich. And I wouldn't describe myself that way. Because I don't feel rich. Big difference between thinking and feeling. The problem with feeling rich is that the last time you and I probably felt rich is when we were young, we had no responsibilities, we had no bills, we were living at home with mom or mom, or mom and dad or, or dad or whatever, and, and we had no responsibility for anybody else in the world, okay? And we got our very first job, and we got our very first paycheck, and we thought, what am I going to do with all this money, right? Because it's not like already going out someplace else. I remember my very first job. I was 16 years old, working five nights a week, two hours each night, cleaning the floors and bathrooms at a place called Murphy's Department Store in the center of Hillsboro. Okay? (laughs) I had no bills. It was all free money. And gas was 22 cents a gallon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I saw one of our students go, cha-ching. Yeah, right. And friends, that was the dead last time I felt rich. Okay? Now think, think about it. All right. Why don't we feel rich? Okay? Why don't we feel rich? Chances are it's, it's one of two reasons. I don't feel rich because I have no financial margin. That's quite often why we don't feel rich. Many of us are making more money than we ever thought we would make. And our spouses are out there working hard as well, bringing home a paycheck every week. And yet, we've made financial decisions, or we've had medical bills, or we got laid off from work, or we found ourselves in a position where we just, we couldn't make ends meet, and and you know what, we have no margin and we barely squeak by paycheck to paycheck in fact many of us are one paycheck one lost paycheck away from bankruptcy and some of us at the end of every month are trying to decide which bill gets paid and here's the truth with friends uh, friends i don't feel rich because No financial margin means no peace. No peace. You're constantly under that financial gun. 
You got to get this paid. You got to get this done. You're 30 days out. So there's a creditor knocking on your door. What are you going to do? It's financial pressure. And you know what's crazy about it, friends? Is it's financial pressure that would not make any sense to most people in the world. Most people in the world can't imagine what we make. The other reason we don't feel rich is because (laughs) I compare my financial position with others. Oh, man. I know about that. I compare my car to my neighbor's car. I compare my house to somebody else's house. And I think, friends, that social media feeds this comparison thing because we see pictures, right? We see pictures of what other people have. We see pictures of what they eat. Like, really? But they send pictures when they're out to eat. And I think, man, you know, kind of wish I could have gone to that restaurant. That looks pretty good. And we see pictures, this is worse, of their vacation, right? Huh. Why can't I travel like that? And we compare ourselves with others. And we always compare up. You ever notice that? We almost never compare down. It's always up. But the truth is, you and I are richer than we think. And here's the reality, friends. We don't feel rich. And you know what? This isn't going to make you feel rich. I already know this isn't going to work, but I just want you to know it. Okay? Because maybe if you know it, And you incorporate it into your thinking. At some point you will feel it. Here it is guys. The reality is if I have a household income of $33,000. Household income. $33,000. I'm in the top 1% of wage earners worldwide. Top 1%. Can you imagine that? I know what you're going to do. You're all going to go home and celebrate this. Right? You're going to throw a party. You're going to have a banner in front of your house saying, we made the 1% club, right? No. Because you don't feel rich. Now, I want you to understand, guys, the goal here is not to make anybody feel guilty. That's not the point. The goal is to help us all feel responsible. Big difference. You see, there are millions of people in the world who look at us and think we are filthy rich. Filthy rich. Now, here's the thing that that James is is leaning into here, and you've got to understand this. In In that first century culture, it was commonly believed that wealth was a sign that you were blessed by God. Okay? Wealth was a sign of that. This was an assumption that was believed not only in the Jewish world, but also in the pagan world that surrounded them, okay? So this was kind of a common notion, and Jesus struggled against this at certain points in his ministry. And the idea was this, God must love rich people, because look at how they get to live, Look at all the stuff that they get to have. And all that stuff and, and, the, and the lifestyle they get to live must, must indicate that God, like, like God blesses them more than others. 
And God must not love poor people so much because look at how they live. (laughs) And look at all the stuff they don't have. And Jesus weighed in against this assumption big time and his half-brother jumps on it as well with his second warning. He says this, he says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Weep and wail because of the ministry, the misery that is coming on you. Now this, friends, when this letter started circulating through the churches, okay, this had to come as a complete shock to the people sitting in church. Because they're part of that culture. And they're, they're, they're kind of programmed to assume rich people are blessed by God. And, and, and James is saying, weep and wail. Because <laughs> misery is coming upon you. And these people in the churches that are hearing this are saying, what are you talking to rich people? These people are favored by God. How can you say that misery is coming on them? But James is saying, you know, he said, he says, your, your future is not as secure as you think. What? I mean, we're not even, we, we struggle to buy that, right? We think rich people are more secure because they have more stuff. They have more money in the bank. They have a bigger bank account or they have a bigger retirement account or they have bigger, bigger, you know, whatever it is. We, we figure, well, well, if they got more, they must be more secure, Right? I mean, rich people must never worry about the future, right? They never worry about money, right? But, you know, James is too smart for that. He knew that the more we have, the more we tend to worry. (laughs) It's just reality. Why? Rich people, and we've all probably done this, okay? Which is probably an indication that we're all rich, okay? Just saying, Rich people have a tendency to put their trust in their wealth rather than in the one who richly provides. Okay? This is something poor people don't tend to do because they don't have it. Okay? Big difference. So James' second warning to us is this. Don't assume rich people are more loved by God. Don't assume that. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that they're, they're, they're experiencing a greater measure of God's blessing or God's favor. It doesn't mean that at all. Don't assume rich people are more loved by God. Rich people are more responsible before God with how they deal with what they have. Okay? Perhaps this will help you understand what James is driving at. You see, there are a couple of extreme positions that have reared their ugly heads throughout the history of Christianity. You may have heard of them, okay? But one extreme is referred to as the poverty gospel. And there are people out there who take some of the stories of Jesus, especially the one where he tells a really rich person to sell everything and give it to the poor. And some people take that story and they say, well, that must apply to every single person that's a follower of Jesus Christ. And so no Christian should own anything, okay? Christians should give everything that they have to the poor. They shouldn't own anything beyond, you know, maybe the, the one, one set of clothes that they have on their back. They shouldn't have a savings account. They should just live one day at a time, okay? 
And if you read the history of Christianity, you, you see people who tried to live that out, and they believed that the poorer they were, the more God would love them. Wow. <laughs> There's a problem with that point of view when you go to that extreme is you find yourself believing that you earn God's love through poverty. That you really earn his love because you gave everything up. So the truth of the matter, because he gave, you gave everything up, he owes you. All right? And it carries into the afterlife. If I had nothing on this earth, God owes me something big in heaven. I'm going to get more stars in my crown. I'm going to get a bigger mansion than the rich guy because you know what? I gave everything up. But there's an opposite extreme. It's just as bad on the other end. And that's this thing that you probably are more familiar with than the poverty gospel. That's, that's the prosperity gospel. And part of the reason you're probably, some of you, familiar with that is because it's all over the United States. All you got to do is turn on Christian TV. And the idea driving this prosperity gospel is that if I really love God and I really have faith, I'll be rich. God's going to bless me with wealth. He's going to give me the house I want, the car I want. And I want a Maserati, by the way. But anyway, he's going to give me what I want because you know what? I have faith. I have faith. And really what's going on when you boil it down is I use God to get the God, which is wealth, that I really love. But you know what? The Bible doesn't teach either one of these extremes. It doesn't tell every Christian that you have to live in poverty, and it doesn't tell every Christian that you're going to have a whole bunch of money or a whole bunch of wealth or great houses or cars or anything like that. Rich people, people who have wealth, aren't more loved by God. They're more responsible. They are responsible, and that gets you to that center part of that diagram. And it's what we've been learning these last three weeks. What are people responsible for? First of all, to support my own needs and those who depend on me. That's what, we're, that's what we do with wealth. We're responsible to support ourselves first and to support those who depend on us. And then secondly, we are responsible to support those who spiritually support me. And the people that spiritually support you, your church family, you have a responsibility to help support your church family. And third, support those in need. You see, the more we have, the more our responsibility expands to be generous in giving to help others. Not just to support ourselves in ever-increasing ways. Well, I got more money so I can have more stuff. No. But to expand our scope of responsibility to those who support us spiritually and those in need. Now, with the second warning from James comes two realities. And the first reality goes like this. The more I possess the more my security tends to shift from God to what I possess. Think about it. I'll repeat that. The more I possess, the more my security tends, 
This is a natural tendency, and people who are Christians who have a lot have to fight against this. It tends to shift our security from God to what we possess. Think about it. Most of us have more now than we've ever had and more than we ever thought we had, and yet we worry more than ever about it. (laughs) Because here's the thing, and this is where you can feel yourself shifting where your security is. When you begin to wonder if any amount of money is enough, or any amount of savings is enough, or any amount of retirement is enough. You know, it's interesting, not too long ago, Cheryl and I sat down with our financial advisor because, you know, I'm getting to that age where you start thinking about, you know, retirement somewhere in the future and, and what's that going to look like. And I just asked him, I said, tell me something. I said, how much is enough? He had no answer. In fact, he threw it back. He threw the ball back in my corner. He said, depends on how you want to live. In other words, the sky's the limit. The sky's the limit. And you see, when our security begins to move from God, the giver of every good and perfect gift, to our stuff, all kind of what-ifs start creeping into our minds. Like, what if I lose my job? What if the stock market crashes? What if I get sick? What if, what if, what if there is no end and there's no end to enough. And our trust has shifted from God to our stuff. But James goes on and says this. He says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. In other words, he's like, you got more clothes in your closet that you can wear. And you've got so many and they've just been sitting in there for so long that, that they're starting to rot and, clothes, and, and moths are eating them. They're ruining the clothes. And he goes on, your gold and silver are corroded. And he's saying, you've got stuff sitting around in your house that you don't use, and it's corroding, it's deteriorating. And he, I mean, think about it. It's like, dude, do you realize you're keeping all this stuff and it's losing value over time? Are you getting that picture? You've held on to stuff for so long that now it's not good for anything to anybody. This is where it's going. And James reminds us of another reality. And that reality is this. The issue isn't how much comes in, but how much accumulates. You know, Christians that kind of tend toward that poverty mindset... That poverty gospel idea, look at wealthy Christians and think, well, I don't know that they should have all that money. I don't think it's right for them to make all that money. Let me tell you something, friends. I thank God every, every, every day that we had some people who were massively talented at making money when we started this church. Because this church would not have floated without those people. And I believe that God knew these people can be trusted with big sums of money because they are generous as the day is long. You see, it's not about how much you make or how much comes in, but how much accumulates. Because here's, here's the reality. The more that tends to come into our hands, if we are not careful, our hands tend to close around that. 
And we tend to tighten our grip on that, and we tend to hold on more and more over time. And then James hammers this point home with this statement. He says, their corrosion will testify against you. In other words, that day that is coming when all that stuff you accumulated that for whatever reason you hold on to will look foolish. You thought it was a good idea or wise thing to accumulate all, the, all that you could and one day it's going to appear senseless to other people. He says their corrosion will testify. They will, it will speak out. And then he says this. He says, and eat your flesh like fire. Now he's laying it on thick here, but here's what you have to understand. This was common language in that culture for God's divine judgment. Okay? In other words, what James is saying is that we will account to God for how we handle the stuff we have. And now I realize there's probably people here in the audience this morning that are not sure that there is a God. Okay? And you may wonder if there really is life after death. And, and, I, and I get the fact that if you're kind of in that position, the whole idea of a judgment may seem archaic and outdated to you. But James believed that there is a God. And he believes that there is life after death and that God is intimately concerned with and will judge how we live our lives. James believed that. Why? (laughs) Because he watched his older brother die on a cross. He knew where they buried him. He knew that he was dead for three days. And he saw his brother and talked with him after he rose from the dead. And friends, the clue phone is ringing, okay? When you talk with somebody who came back from the dead, you begin to believe in eternal life. (laughs) Funny how that works, isn't it? And James wants us to know that there is an afterlife and there will be an accounting with our Heavenly Father about how we handled our stuff. And he's not done. He says this. and this, 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 he, say, he says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. In other words, he's saying to these people, he's saying, the end is near, but you don't act like it. You act like you've got forever. Why hoard when you're not guaranteed tomorrow? And this is James' third warning. Don't assume I will have time to enjoy what I hoard. If you're hoarding stuff, don't, James is saying, don't assume you'll have time to enjoy it. Let me give you an example. Some of you have experienced this. Have you ever had to clean out your mom or dad's house? Or perhaps a relative's or maybe it's your grandparents after they passed away. Have you ever had to do that? It's tough duty. Or maybe you had to do it with a relative downsized and you had to move them into assisted living or, or something like that. And you go into that house and there's all this stuff that was so important to them and you're thinking, why did they keep all that? What am I going to do with this? 
How am I going to ever get through sorting all this stuff out? You know what? You don't have to do that anymore. Do you realize that there is actually a business out there? Because we checked on it because we're going to be in this position at some point with a relative who will remain unnamed. But anyway, um, there is actually a business out there called Everything But The House. You call them up. They roll in with a truck. They clean the house totally out. You don't see any of it. You don't have to mess with any of it. You pay them a fee. They get rid of it. They do, they do what they do with it. And some of you are thinking, that's awful because that will be my stuff someday. And guess what? Your kids won't care. They're not going to want to take care of all that stuff. They're not going to have room for it. And in fact, they'll probably be standing around going, what do we do with this? Call the company. Okay. In fact, when, when James says that our stuff will testify against us, ask yourself this. If I just look at what I've hung on to, what will my kids testify about that when they have to deal with it? What will they talk about? What will they say about all this stuff I've got when they're the ones that are saddled with it? Now, friends, here's the thing we've we got to understand. We've got to beware what, what's, what's known as the consumption assumption. There's this, there's this mindset that I think all of us kind of tend toward called the consumption assumption. In other words, if it comes to me, it must be for me. It's mine. It comes to me, it, it, it's, it's for me, I'm, I, I want to hang on to it. But here's the reality, guys. And James is driving at this reality. You and I will most likely run out of time before we run out of money and before we run out of stuff. We will run out of time before we run out of stuff. Chances are, when we pass on, there will still be stuff. (laughs) Now James shifts gear and he says this in James 5 verse 4. He says, look, The wages you failed to pay workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. And then as if if you didn't quite get that the first time, he, he hits it from another angle. He says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And you're probably thinking, whoa, man, that's a a big shift in in thought right here. But here's what he's driving at, okay? There was a tremendous disparity between the rich and the poor in that culture. And it wasn't unusual for landowners to hire people to work their fields. And it was, <laughs> it was not uncommon for them to chisel those people out of their wages. And because they were poor, they had very little recourse to do anything about it. Okay? And so quite often what landowners would do is they'd say, we're going to, okay, if you come and you work full day, I'll pay you this much. And at the end of the day, well, I, they didn't pay them that much. They paid them less. Or if the worker was working, let's say he's raking a field or he's hoeing a field and the, and the rake breaks or the hoe breaks, not because of misuse, but just because it was, it was old in his age. Hey, you know what? I'm taking that out of your wages. You got to pay for the rake. And they chiseled 
poor, and the poor had no legal recourse. And James is saying, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. In other words, God's watching. Okay, he's not going to ignore that. He's not just going to look, look another way. He's not going to let that go. And you're, you're probably thinking, well, okay, what, what, what could we draw from that? And I think there's a fourth warning here from James. And that is don't assume that I can get by with doing less. If you, if you have people who work under you or people that you employ, are you taken care of? When you go to a restaurant and somebody serves you, do you take care of them? Okay? The people at church who serve you, do you take care of them or do you just kind of think they owe you? Yeah, they owe me a kid's program at Good News. Whoa. You see, don't assume that you can give by with doing less. Look for opportunities to do more, to give more, to be more generous. Now, let's let's be honest, okay? If all there is to this life is this life, then none of this makes any sense. You've got to understand that, all right? (laughs) If, If all you do is get born, you live your life, and you die, and it's over, there's no afterlife, then ignore James, because this, you know, your best bet is to get all you can get, do whatever you want, hoard everything you can have, live it up large, and die, okay? That's what you got. But if there is more to this life, and James, if he were here today, would say, are you kidding me? Of course there's more than this life. I've seen my brother. I've talked to him. He came back from the dead. There is another life. Then at the end of the day, according to Jesus, your stuff isn't your stuff. (laughs) It's God's. And he gave it to you to use. Not only to support yourself. Not only to support those that depend on you but to support your spiritual family and to support those who cannot support themselves. The fact is, you don't own it and you're going to leave it. So what are you going to do with it? That's the question that really matters. And I'm here to tell you, friends, whatever you do with it that advances the kingdom of God, you will never regret that. Now, James closes with one last shot, and I'm just going to tell you this is brutal, okay? But hang with me. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Now, you're probably looking at that and going, what does that mean? Well, back in those days, what they would do if they knew, like, for example, we got, we got Easter coming up in three or four weeks, and let's say you're going to have all your friends and family over for a big Easter dinner. You would take one of your calves or one of your cattle, and you would set them aside. You'd put them in a special pen where the others couldn't jostle them around or anything like that. You would overfeed them, okay, to fatten them up, so that when Easter comes, you're going you're gonna to slaughter that thing, and you're going to have a huge, huge meal, Right? 
And James takes that analogy that everybody sitting in church in that culture would immediately understand, and he says, you fattened yourselves. Whoa. See, you think by hoarding all this stuff and accumulating all this stuff and getting bigger and bigger and bigger that you are fattening up for a celebration. And he says, no. When you live like that, you're the one that ends up getting slaughtered. And here's a very fascinating historical fact. James was executed somewhere around 62 to 63 AD, okay? In 70 AD, the Romans descended upon Jerusalem. They encircled the city. Rich and poor were trapped. There is, it is estimated that somewhere in the neighborhood of a million Jews were in Jerusalem when the Romans surrounded them. Because of internal strife in the city, tons of people died with infighting within the city, rich and poor alike. And then the Romans descended on them and killed them by the hundreds of thousands. And all of a sudden, all that wealth that all those wealthy people amassed in that city didn't amount to anything. They died just like the poor. So friends, the question this morning for us is what really matters? And what are we going to do about what we have? In your packet of information, you have a decision day card. And I'm just going to kind of roll through this real quickly with you, okay? Um, <clears throat> but here's, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to kind of talk through this with you just for a moment. And then I'm going to pray over you and over any decisions that you feel that God is leading you to make this morning. Now, as I said earlier, this is entirely between you and God. But this commitment form says this. It says, in response to God's blessing to me, I'm asking God to help me commit to meeting my financial responsibilities in the following areas. And the first area is to meet my own needs by my own work so that others don't have to. And friends, I'm not going to go through each one of those things. I hope that you'll prayerfully consider what God is calling you to do in this area if he is. But I do want to point out that last box. It says, completing the freed up financial living class. We're going to be presenting that in a few weeks. And we're actually going to be presenting it at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning in another room here in the building. So you can come in at 9 o'clock. You can take the financial living class. And then you can come and just stick around for the service at 10. And there's child care and all that. So make it easy on you. The second area is financial responsibility number two, to support those who spiritually support me. And I just want to point out that one box that says, I will begin giving something in a regular, identifiable way. And some of you may be wondering, why? What's important about regular and what's important about identifiable? You see, friends, when you give in a way that identifies who you are to our financial team, you're making a step up in commitment. You're saying, I'm a part of this family that can be counted on to support those who spiritually support me. 
that third one is financial responsibility. Number three, humbly meet the needs of those who can't meet their own. And there are several things that we do there through Haiti's child sponsorships and in our mission outreach in Haiti and also with our mission partners like um, Southern Ohio Pregnancy Center. I just want to highlight that one today because they've asked us for a favor, okay? Next Saturday morning between 10 and 12, they need five to seven people, people who are are strong enough to carry some boxes of, of material and stuff like that. They need us to go up there from 10 to noon, two hours is all, to help them load this stuff and to carry it from one room to another because they're doing some remodeling or something like that. And I told them, we'll have people there. Count on us. And if you're interested in being a part of that, on your your Connect card, just put SOPC with your name and contact information so I can get a hold of you this week. Now, it also has down there Class 101 and through 401, the class series and also the baptism celebration, which is coming up uh, on April the 5th. And friends, if you want to be involved in that, please check that box on your Connect card that you want to be baptized and we'll get you in for a baptism interview. Now, friends, if if you're wondering why the name and address and all that kind of stuff is on the bottom, there's only one reason for that. And it goes like this. Many people just take this home, put it in their study Bibles where they can see it or they put it on their refrigerator and that's great. But there are some people who ask me to pray for them through the year. And if you would like me to do that, I'll be happy to do that and pray for whatever decisions you've chosen to make. But if you want to do that, all you have to do is fill that information in. Drop your card in the boxes on the tables at the back of the auditorium, okay? I will make a copy of it and send it back to you this week. And then throughout the year, I will pray for you by name, periodically. And every once in a while, every couple or three months, you'll get a note or you'll get an email from me talking about what's going on and asking how you're doing on the commitments you've made. Friends, I hope this decision day will be a life-altering day for you. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for this time that we've had to look into your word. Help us, Father, to let your word mold us, discipline us, grow us, and make us more like your son. I pray for each person here, Father, and for the decisions that they make. Bless them. Strengthen them. And help our family to become deeper in you. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.